Uh, let's talk about the context for just a second, and then we'll uh, go into what we're looking at. Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets that God sent to his people to stir them up. This is in the period after the captivity, when they've come back from the captivity, and they started working on rebuilding the temple that Babylon had destroyed. Of course, the temple was the house of God, so to speak, the place where God dwelt with his people. They laid the foundation of the temple, and there was some problems. There was opposition and different things, and so they quit. And they quit for about 16 years until Haggai and Zacharias started up to get started rebuilding on that temple again. That was a big project. It was pretty discouraging in some ways, a lot of work involved. But Haggai and Zechariah encouraged, exhorted, rebuked, and did whatever they needed to try to help them in doing that. In the process, they talked about a lot of things, not just the temple project themselves, itself, but Haggai and Zechariah were two spoken for God prophets, that God revealed his messages to the people. One of the things that the prophets often do to try to encourage people is talk about the future, talk about the promises and the blessings that God will give his faithful people in the future. Now, in the process, they'll talk about the uh, wicked people that God's going to punish, but they'll always talk about the, the blessed remnant, that after the punishment uh, comes the blessings for those who are faithful, the, the, those who've been purged and winnowed by his judgments. And certainly that's true in Zechariah. Now, when you come to the prophets before the exile, a lot of times when they look to the future, in part they were looking to the blessings that come with the return from captivity. <laughs> but you don't have that situation when you're looking at Zechariah, they've already returned from captivity. So there's no foreground fulfillment in the return. Some see some foreground fulfillment in events of the Maccabean period, but primarily a prophet like Zechariah, when he looks to future blessings, is really looking to the future blessings that we have now in Christ. And so we get a lot out of these passages because they really reveal to us the prophet's perspective, God's perspective through Zechariah, on what we receive in Jesus. Now, we were looking in chapter 12 and 13 at what really is a, a very wonderful statement of the gospel conversion process. He talks in 12.10 how God pours out his spirit. As a result of that, we see how we look upon the one we pierce. You know, we, we turn to the Lord in faith. We grieve what we've done to him very intensely and very personally. And then we come to the fountain for cleansing for sin and impurity, chapter 13, verse 1. And the result is a radically changed life. You see the zeal to get rid of idolatry and false prophecy, and to live faithfully before God. That, that's exactly what we, we would see in the New Testament. You know, God has poured out his grace and mercy. We look in faith to Jesus. We grievingly repent of our sins. We come to God's fountain of cleansing as we're baptized into the death of Christ. And then we live a life of a radical discipleship, where we put everything that's sinful away and we live for the Lord. And so that's the context of this. He goes on from here to really talk mostly about the blessings that we have in Christ. Now, when you come to a book like Zechariah, he is describing these blessings in highly poetic terms. 
very uh, spiritual, figurative language, graphic, vivid pictures, but they throw us off sometimes. We're kind of the newspaper society. We want all of the just who, what, when, where, why. We don't want any, uh, you know, uh, poetry in that. But but that's the way the Bible is written in some parts. It's, it's more poetic, it's more graphic, and it makes us dream about the blessings that are coming. So we're going to be looking at what we receive, but in a poetic sense, uh, from Zachariah's perspective. Let's get into this, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So we have stopped at 13.6. We're going to continue from there. Zechariah 13, would somebody read 7 to 9? A legal sword against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little one. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Okay, we just have talked about essentially the conversion process. People coming to the fountain opened for sin and for impurity. But how is it that God is able to forgive man's sins? That's, that's really a... You know, a, a question mark. I mean, it's really nice on God's part. But, but what does it take for God to do that? How is he going to provide that? You had a hint of that in 1210, where he talks about looking on me whom they pierced. But you really see it in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. God is summoning his sword... Against his shepherd, against his associate. Now, who would God's shepherd, God's associate be that he summoned the sword against? Jesus, exactly. That's what sin required. Sin is so evil that God had to bring the sword against his beloved son. It really shows you the awful power of sin, that what it took to justly forgive sin was to punish sin in God's own shepherd, God's own associate. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. That was quoted in the New Testament. We're, we're in no doubt that this passage is talking about what God's doing to Jesus. Now, this was not a matter that the father didn't like the son. It was not punishing the son for his sins. Jesus was sinless. This was the sacrifice that was required for God to forgive sins. By God's justice and righteousness and holiness, sin needed to be punished. And there was no adequate sacrifice among animals to take our place in the punishment of sin. It took a, a perfect sacrifice. That was Jesus. Jesus himself was willing to submit to the Father and drink the cup of wrath and be punished in our place. But this is a horrifying thing to think about. That God was forced, if he was going to save us, he had to call for his sword to go against his own associate, his own shepherd. When he did that, what happened to the sheep? They were scattered. Remember how that worked even literally when Jesus was arrested. And 
the among the sheep there is a separation. Look at verse eight. What percentage of what fraction of the sheep were going to perish? Two thirds. One third were left, but what happens with that one third? They're tested through the fire and they're further purged and purified and refined to come up with a remnant that call in his name. And he answers and says, and he says, they're my people, and they respond, the Lord is my God. So these the blessing of the forgiveness that God provides by slaughtering his shepherd in our place, that blessing is not for all of the Jews. It's not for all people on the earth. It's not even for all of those who have turned to the Lord in faith initially. There's a, there's a purging process of, of passing through the fire even for them. But those who maintain their faith and diligence until the end are, are, are blessed with this close relationship with God where they call and he answers. Where he says, you're my people, and they say, you're my God. You're my Lord. And so these are the people that are purged and purified and blessed in Christ. So really, with the slaying of the shepherd, God redefines and re refines his people. His people are those who have stayed faithful to him through the fire, and they are blessed with forgiveness. I think that's the picture. That's a pretty cryptic passage, but I think once you see that, it's, it's amazing. Again, the clarity of a Zechariah 500 years before Jesus to be able to reveal all these things. Comments and questions on this passage. Fourteen one to five. 